All right, gang, grab a seat if you're able. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. And as you do that, if you're uh, hunting for a seat, there are some seats up here in the spitting zone on the first row if you need a seat. Don't be shy. Don't be afraid to come up here in the front row. In your bulletin, there are green Trinity Connect cards. If you would please grab these and fill it out, whether this is your first time here or you're a repeat visitor and guest with us or you're a member, please fill this out and drop it in the offering plate as it comes around after the sermon. Next week, uh, December the 22nd, we're having our annual Christmas offering. And that Christmas offering is going toward two goals, uh, objectives. The first objective is that we would like to give a total of $25,000 as the Lord would lead you. Now again, let me just say that I know that in these years of our church, there's lots of pulls on us financially as we begin to prepare for a, a building. We pay off our land and then turn the corner toward brick and mortar. There are lots of pulls on us. And so we want you to continue to be so faithful as you have been in giving to the general offering and to the Roots campaign. Thank you so much for those of you who have given to those ends. But if you would like to give over and beyond those gifts and those commitments, then we invite you next week to give to the Christmas offering. $15,000 if we hit our $25,000 goal. $15,000 will go outside of our walls to New City Fellowship in North Tulsa to help encourage them this Christmas, a new church plant in North Tulsa. And then $10,000 will go to help us uh, be able to uh, uh, scholarship and supplement families in our church who are in counseling. We all know that counseling takes a toll financially, and we want to be a church that encourages people to get good counseling, whether it's from Scott or myself, and oftentimes it's being referred to another um, trusted counselor, and we want to be able to help um, you do that as easily as possible. So, Christmas offering. When is that? Next Sunday. All right. Heads up. I don't want to catch you off guard. Now, if you're willing and able, would you please stand with me as we read from Matthew chapter 11, 25 through 30. Gratitude is a virtue. It is not a feeling you get based upon your circumstances. And we're talking about this theme of gratitude as we approach Christmas. We're often grateful for Christmas because we're grateful for what happens on Christmas morning. We get gifts. But as Christians, we know that we're grateful because of Christ himself, who was the ultimate gift to us. And we want to make virtue uh, gratitude of virtue, not just a feeling. And so we're talking about how to push it down to let the gospel help you marinate and what it means to be a person that is deeply, deeply grateful. Half a dozen times, Jesus himself says, thank you, Father, in the gospels. And this is one such very unique time. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. About this time a year ago, many of us watched the funeral of the 41st president of the United States. And during that funeral, there was a biographer, a world-renowned biographer, a biographer named John Meachin, who spoke for 12 minutes on the amazing example that George H.W. Bush had set the last great civil servant, he called him. And he talked about George H.W. Bush meeting this um, girl from Rye, New York, called Barbara the Spitfire, how he had delayed college to go and serve his nation in World War II, how in World War II he was shot down, and he prayed, floating on the waters, that the allies would find him before the enemies. It was an amazing 12-minute speech. But what people remember that funeral about most was not the biographer, the scholar who spoke about J, uh, George H.W. Bush. It was the other guy who spoke for 12 minutes, George W. Bush, his son, who spoke about George H.W. Bush not as the 43rd president of the United States, but George Jr. spoke about his dad, as only a son could. And he started out his speech, and he said, distinguished guests, including our presidents and first ladies, government officials, foreign dignitaries, and friends, Jeb, Neil, Marvin, Doro, and I and our families, thank you all for being here. And then he spoke passionately about his father being the brightest of a thousand points of light, and how he loved to flush a cubby of quail. And how he knew that his dad just longed to hold their, his little sister, their daughter, who had died at three years old. And who he also knew longed to hold the hand of his beloved bride, Barbara, a hand he held on earth for 73 years. It was an amazing speech by a president and a very intimate moment for someone of such caliber to speak so intimately of a father and invite the world into the intimate setting of the Bush living room. And in this passage, in much the same way, Jesus thanks his father for revealing powerful insight about himself, about the father, about his care for the world. But he thanks his father for revealing this not to the theologically sophisticated, not to the scribes and Pharisees, but he thanks his father for revealing it to little children, to the unlearned, to the simple. It's as though Jesus says in this passage, in the midst of all of these biblical scholars who are no doubt hear him speak to his disciples, Jesus says, the guys who know the most about the Bible don't get it. Children get it. And in this context, Matthew is painting for us a beautiful picture of how Jesus is the true and greater Moses. How the entire book of Matthew is comprised of four main compartments that parallel the 
five, I mean, five main compartments that parallel the five books of the Torah, of the Old Testament. And Jesus is the new and greater Moses who speaks with power and authority to give the people of God new teaching, not based upon the law, but based upon himself as the fulfillment of the law. And in this context, Jesus speaks to his disciples and he, he makes a confession. When Jesus says, thank you, Father, the word is homo legeo. Jesus says, I, I confess to you, Father. I, I thank you, Father. It's not the normal word he would use for thank you, Eucharisto. That's the word he uses every other time. But here, he uses a different Greek word that says, Lord, I confess, I agree with you. I come alongside you. I just say thank you. And it's, it's interesting to me as Jesus enters into teaching us what it means to be grateful. Right? We follow people's examples. That's what we said last week, our last point. You learn how to be grateful from following examples. And this week when I was talking to Scott about the sermon, Scott made the uh, astute observation that whenever Paul says thank you in his epistles, Paul is always thanking the Lord not for his circumstances but for some spiritual truth some reality about his life and his relationship with the covenant God. And, and so here Jesus thanks God for some profound reality also about the nature of childlike faith. And Jesus has a confession. And he says, I thank you. I thank you, Father. I agree with your verdict on the world. That's what he means to say. What would confession I mean, the word that Jesus, that we translate thank you in the ESV is the same word that's used most times for confession. What would confession look like without sin? Jesus certainly never sinned, did he? So when Jesus wants to draw near to his Father, just like we draw near to our Father in heaven, we lead by confession of sin. But here Jesus leads by confession of gratitude. Isn't that interesting? And so when Jesus comes before the Father, he kneels before him and he says, Father, thank you. Why does he say thank you? He says thank you because the way that we've been going about this, trying to teach those who should have gotten the message, the scribes and the Pharisees, the way that we lead the way in teaching them is actually not working. And Jesus flips the script completely on them. And Jesus says that it is to the children to those who have a simple faith, not a simplistic faith, but who have a simple faith that really get and understand the gospel. Jesus says, thank you for the children. Why? Three things that children have that adults need to learn. Number one, children confess that they have a great need. Children get it. Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children, to little nepios, to small infants. In these little children, we find the virtue of gratitude and need. It is not the sophoi, the wise, or the senatoi, the understanding, but it is in the nepios, the little children whom God has apocalypsed. He has revealed himself, revealed the truth. Children, Get it. It's been said that simple things lie on the other side of complexity. 
Like, you know, if you watch an amazing gymnast, it, it, you know, she makes it just seem easy. Or when you, you watch a Joe Burrow play for LSU and win the Heisman Trophy, you watch him play and it just looks effortless the way he can, you know, carve through a defense. Have you ever seen a great athlete do something amazing? It makes it, makes it look just so effortless. It looks so simple. But you know that it's not really that simple. It's a simplicity or a simple that comes only on the other side of complexity because that guy has spent thousands of hours practicing. That guy has studied film. That person has practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced. And for those of us in this church who have a very simple childlike faith, oh, we learn from you. We see it. And we watch. There are many old souls And some of the oldest souls are in our children. We watch their childlike faith. And for a lot of us, we had a very simplistic faith. We went to church. That's what we did. We celebrated. We got up on Sundays. Went to Christmas and Easter. And then you got divorced. And things got complicated. And then you lost your child. Things got complex. And then you flunked a class. And all of a sudden it became the real deal. And we all know that the most poignant moments of our life are things that are filled with both difficulty and delight. Because it's through those difficult times that the complexity of our life pulls us out of a simplistic kind of faith. Where we just kind of wear Christianity as a moniker to get by in life. And it lands and the other shoe drops. And we understand the gospel is for us. And our faith becomes not simplistic, but it becomes simple. Because we know, like these children, that first of all, that we have a need. Children model humility for us. They get it. One of the points Jesus is trying to make. Not only that, but secondly, children know that they can't live alone. They are utterly dependent. Look at Jesus' claim here in verse 27. Jesus makes this astounding claim. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. In other words, what it says is that this is a proclamation to his disciples, that, that salvation is found in the Messiah, in the Son. You can't do it just by following the Old Testament law. That's what the scribes and Pharisees are doing. And, you know, 10 verses before that, he just said, Woe to you, Bible scholars. Woe to you who think you know good theology. But you've become arrogant and proud. And John Chrysostom and Augustine and Luther and Calvin... And almost every commentator on this passage says that little children is not about age, it's about disposition toward God, that you recognize that you are humbled by the fact that God would call you to be His. And that your pride and your arrogance, which once was so great, gets beaten out of you by the complexities of life to give you a simple faith on the other side. And so little children here is not an age thing. Jesus is saying He reveals it to those who are humble. Those who may know quite a bit, but that only gives them the privilege of knowing that they don't know very much yet. 
I mean, those of you who are in here and working on your doctorate or your master's, there's several of us in here, I see your faces. Like, you know that you get your degree and it's like, thank you very much. This is your degree to show you now that you admit that you don't know a whole lot. And isn't that true in the Christian life too? The more that you walk with Christ, the more that you realize you have so much more of God to learn and more about yourself. So children know that they can't do it alone. They are utterly dependent. And of course, we are dependent upon Christ. It is only by the Father's gracious will that any of us are brought into faith with him. And Jesus thanks his Father that he gets to see it in you. He gets to see it in you, in your childlike faith, by trusting him when he asks you to to, to give in a way that you're not comfortable giving or to serve in a way that you're not totally comfortable serving. He says, I'm with you. Trust me. Because little children, they get it. They know what it's like to have need. Do you? Do you compare yourself to others? Or do you compare yourself to God's word? Do you rate yourself based upon how much you know or how much you still have to know? Does your theological knowledge make you more loving or generous? Does your growth in wisdom make you bolder and more willing to be misunderstood because you are now more comfortable being around sinners, not just self-protectionistic, not just always preserving your public reputation? Parents, as you disciple your children, are you, are you talking with them about the complexities of life in a fallen world? Or are you seeking to protect them, not for their good, but for yours? Because you are uncomfortable t- having hard conversations with your kids about life in a fallen world. Are we growing as a church and being more humbled and amazed at God's work in our life? Or are we growing to be more arrogant and proud? You know, there's a study that... that uh, the session was talking about this week that says that in the last 30 years, um, millennials, people who are 18 to 38, have, um, uh, at least in the last 30 years, there's a four times more likely chance that a millennial will say that they have no religious affiliation than it was true about the previous generation, the Gen Xers, in 1986. And it's interesting, isn't it? Why is that? It's because the way that we've done church, friends, hasn't worked very well, has it? Because it's been based upon programs, and it's been based upon what you know. It's been, but, but look where we stand in the context of redemptive history now. Like, you know, if, if you want to buy stock when it's going down, now's a good time to buy Christianity because it's fallen pretty quick. People are just leaving in droves. Why? Because they, they, they're not seeing the honest relationships they're seeing a lot of backbiting and they're seeing a lot of arrogance and a lot of like theological one-upmanship. Friends, we want to be able to know the Bible so well. We want to know it. But the mark of us really knowing God's word and knowing the traditions and the history and the theology, the proof that we know that is we become more loving and more welcoming, not less. And so, yes, it's good to have theological conversations. And I would love for you to come the 15th of January to downtown to Elote to Bible study with me. We'll talk about all those things. But the upshot ought to be that we become more loving and therefore in a world fraught 
with very, very, very conservatives on one side and really, really, really liberals on the other, we're going to be misunderstood because we don't play those games. We just want to hold high Jesus and all that he is the best that we can. And we'll probably get shot by both sides, and that's okay. We are a conservative theological church. And yet we want to love people's socks off like the most liberal church you've ever seen and drive them to see the beauty of Christ whose hands were opened wide to them to say, come in, come struggle with us, come as you are. Let's experience what the gospel's like together because the older I get, the more I know I need you. And the older you get, the more we need each other. And we certainly need these children. So children teach us what it is to have a need. They teach us that we can't live life alone, that we are utterly dependent upon Christ. And lastly, children teach us what it means or what it um, should mean to desire to be held. To desire to be held. Children get it. Notice what Jesus says in, in his call. He has a confession, verse 25 and 26. He has a claim, verse 27. He has a call, verse 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Come to me, all who are exhausted and overwhelmed, you could translate it. Does it say, come to Bible study? Does it even say, come, come, to, come to church? No, you can come to church and miss Jesus. It says, come to me. And Jesus is found, of course, in the context of corporate worship. But when you come to corporate worship, you shouldn't be just about saying hi to friends, although that's important. There should be a time in your service when you find yourself deeply connecting with your Savior. There's a time in every service where he picks you up and he just holds you. And he sings over you and he rocks you. And he says, I know your anxieties. I know every one of them. And just like a child can in the dark find their way to their mother, so also we in the darkness of our life should find our way to Christ. And the best time to do that, the God-ordained time to do that is in corporate worship together. You climb into his lap and you hear him sing over you with his love again and again. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle in lowly in heart. Jesus, when he holds you, he gives, he gives those who have childlike faith, he gives them refreshment. Come to me, all who are labor, uh, are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He gives you refreshment. He gives you rest. But he also gives you equipment. He says, then, now that I've held you, take my yoke upon, take my yoke upon you. And, of course, in the Old Testament days, and the scribes and Pharisees would know that this word yoke was referring to the Old Testament Torah, the, the law in the Old Testament. You know, there, there, are, um, there are many Jewish quotations about how um, the, the, if you want to learn to know God, then the way to God is through learning. And therefore, we had, you know, school for young Jewish boys so early. Even now, if you have Jewish friends, you know that they know their Old Testament so well because they go to school before school in order to learn it. But here Jesus says to them, you want to know me? Then take my yoke upon you. I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And learn from me because I am gentle and lowly in heart. Come here to me, Matthew says. And as he puts this book together, 
It's amazing to me that he encapsulates this entire book by this phrase that Jesus says, come to me. That's the whole story of Matthew, chapters 1 to 3. The story of Jesus coming, Advent and Christmas, those early chapters. And then he says, take my yoke upon you, just as Jesus taught us in Matthew 4 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. And learn from me, just as you saw me working in the nine lives of the people he gives examples of in chapters 8 through 10. Because I am gentle and humble in heart. And as you are learning to trust me, let me hold you as a little child as he teaches not the scholars in chapter 11, but the children and those who have childlike faith. Come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart. If we're going to learn what it means to be a people who are grateful, we have to follow an example. And the example that we set is often seen in many of us in the room. We see many people who are so grateful. And you're a model to us. Thank you. But our ultimate model, of course, is Christ. Who thanked the Father by flipping the script and saying, I'm not coming to the learned or to the wise. I'm coming to those who have childlike faith. Do you? Friends, as you enter Christmas, do you come with a childlike faith? Do you see through all of the marketing the beauty of the Savior who came to us? Are you able to help coach your children to look through all of the marketing of Christmas and to say, this is what it's really about, and to use this as a discipleship opportunity? Husbands, do you lead your wives in that way? Wives, do you lead your husbands in that way? Do you mutually edify each other? This is what we're called to do as God's people, amen? We fight, fight. Because Jesus' yoke is not burdensome. It is light, and the yokes often weren't just made for one person. There'd be two animals together in a yoke, just like the Lord has given you each other. He's given you your community group. Are you a part of one? Or are you doing life alone? That's not the simple faith God calls you to have. You're to be locked in with others. That's the expression of your gratitude as you learn from them. Humility and gratitude are not things we feel. They are virtues that we exemplify because we see them exemplified in the only one who could possibly give them to us, the Lord Jesus himself. And gratitude is not a means of grace by which we earn a right to stand before the Father. It is a fruit of his gracious work in our life and a product, a byproduct of us being able to say as little children, Lord, we have a need for you. We need you now more than ever. Oh, Father, I cannot do this alone, but I'm utterly dependent upon you. Can you say that this Christmas? And, oh, Lord, I just want to be held. I just want you to remind me that you view me as a son and not as a slave. As the old hymn said, if Christ restrain me, then I shall be free. Run, John, run, the law commands. But it gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and it gives us wings to fly to him as little children. It's one thing to know God, like John Meachin knows George H.W. Bush. His words are etched in marble somewhere, I'm sure. 
But the most touching thing about that funeral was seeing the words of a son cry out about his father. And in the same way, Jesus says, it is not the words of the scribe, it is not the, it is not the demonstrations of their knowledge that shows their faith. It is the cries of a child. Daddy, I need you. Daddy, I'm dependent upon you. Daddy, would you hold me? That's the cry of our heart as grateful people because Jesus longs to do that for us. If you are here and you do not yet know God personally, then verse 27 says that Jesus shows you who he is. You want to see God the Father? Martin Luther once said to students, quit trying to ascend to the heavens to find God. Look at Jesus and hold on to him because he is all you got. And so, friends, your only solution to the need you feel is Christ. Believe him. He went on the cross for you, not for your mom and dad, children, not for your brother or sister, not for the person next to you, adult. He went there for you. And Christmas is a reminder that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever shall believe in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. We are needy, we are dependent, and we know and desire what it's like to be held by one who doesn't judge us, but sings over us his love as a father dotes and sings over his children. And as we come to the table, hear your father singing over you. And if you're not a Christian, hear the Lord Jesus say to you, come unto me, all who are heavy laden. I know what it's like. I know you've been fighting. And find rest for your souls. Amen? Amen. Father, would you help us to grow in gratitude? Help us this Advent season as we approach Christmas Would you make gratitude a virtue in our life that's not based upon our circumstances, but bore it deep within us so that it marks our life. And may we see in the faith of children the neediness that you call us to have, the dependence that you so long for us to continue to admit we have, the older and older we get. And may you remind us in little children that we too can come to you and you will sing over us your love as a father holds, as a good father holds his children. And Lord, now as we turn our eyes toward the offering, may this be yet another expression of our gratitude. And may we give it to you willingly and joyfully. And thank you for all the provision you have provided for us. Most of all, the greatest gift and provision there was, the Lord Jesus Christ the sinless Son of God who came to die for sinners so that sinners like me might know what it's like to be made whole again with my Father. In Jesus' name, amen.